Hello and welcome. Today's guest is Dr. Patrick Francois. Dr. Francois is a professor and director of the Vancouver School of Economics at the University of British Columbia. His work focuses on problems in development economics with a particular interest in the political economy. He clearly is a uh, talented educator as he was very patient in explaining what economics is as well as uh, speculating some of my questions with me as economics obviously is not my strong suit. It was a pleasure having him on. So thank you very much, Dr. Francois. If you like this podcast, be sure to share it with friends and family, as well as take a listen to our other episodes. We also have a website set up where you can check out blog articles, as well as connect with us. Uh, there's a little email on there and We'd love to hear from you, so be sure to check that out. The website is www.probablywrong.ca. Uh, enjoy the show and have a great day. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered, this is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. So I have uh, now it's Patrick uh, Francois, is that correct? Yeah. yeah okay. Probably. We have uh, Patrick with us. Patrick is the director of School of Economics at UBC. Thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. Yeah. So it, it must be pretty interesting right now in terms of education. I guess you're just working from home. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm working from home mainly. A few of us are going in and occasionally I, I would go in if, uh, if something necessitated it. Uh, teaching from home, doing research from home. You know, most of the time in my position, I'm doing admin and the admin load has just, you know, it's, it's, it's grown a lot because, you know, it's insanely difficult to do this thing halfway decently when we can't meet face to face. So the big thing is teaching, the challenges around teaching, delivering content, making students engaged, um, keeping people from going crazy, you know, mm. people are getting frustrated, uh, students are getting frustrated, faculty are getting frustrated, it's hard, it's really hard. But mostly, most of the people that are, you know, I'm dealing with are pretty patient and they get that, you know, it's a tough time. Um, it gets a bit tense more around assessment, that's a hard thing, that's a hard kind of one to crack, right? Because there's a whole bunch of these online proctoring things that can be used, but they don't go very well. There's always glitches with them. So, you know, it's a, it can be tough. Yeah. But it's, you know, compared to like what a lot of other people are going through, it's not so bad. Right. Yeah. I took, I took one online course uh, when I was at uh, doing my undergrad in history mm. and I, I didn't attend any, any course. Like, so I, I just wrote the papers and then did the test at the end and uh, I, I did okay. But I, you know, for me, I, I get a lot more out of it, the face to face, but with these interfaces and the live things, it's really changed because when I did it, it was like this pre-recorded thing and it was just, it was so dry. Yeah. But the, but the mediums are really changing. Yeah. So the medium's way better. So, yeah. you know, here's the thing, right? So if we had like a year to practice it before we went online uh, and everyone was working hard on that, we would have we would have been able to produce much better quality online courses, right? But the way it happened, we pivoted in, I think in March, yeah. so that like half of that semester and the exam bits of it all went online. And then we weren't ready at all, right? So we did that super fast. Students needed their grades for, you know, for graduation, for all sorts of things, just had to be done. 
And that was a disaster, right? A lot of that was terrible. So starting now, by, by that we had the summer to work on it. So for September, it should be better, right? But still, you know, we're by no means experts. So if you compare it to like the courses that are offered by places like the Open University, they've been doing it for years. They have a lot of interactive things. They're using the video better. Whereas, you know, a lot of our people are just taking a, a video of them lecturing and just and posting that and having some sort of online office hours. It's just not that good, right? Right. It's just not that interactive. Students aren't staying engaged. So, so you know, I, you know, eventually, if we if we had to stay like this forever, we'd get better. I mean, the kind of silver lining is that we're learning some things that will improve our traditional standard course delivery. I think into the future, we're learning a lot about collaborative research over distance. Hmm. We're having a lot of meetings that we wouldn't usually have. Like I'm in, a, I'm in a school. We don't like meeting at all. We all like. <laughs> serious about our research we hate getting together and listen to somebody drone on but you know with these things you can just organize a meeting pretty easy someone takes 15 minutes out 20 minutes out of the day you can get 10 people there mm. get the thing solved so those things i could imagine being carried on into the future and we would never have kind of explored them if we weren't pushed to it so yeah there are pluses for sure yeah i i definitely noticed that too like with uh well i I, I work in the school district and staff meetings are like, Oh my God, like I'd rather listen to somebody, you know, put nails on a chalkboard for two hours. Mm -hmm. But now with these meetings, you know, you could be way more succinct. And the best part, like you said, is that you can connect with people all around the world mm -hmm. very easily. Right. Yeah. Cause we're, we're all in the same kind of field yeah. right now. Yeah. So, yeah, but, and kind of, kind of say the other best part is that um, when you get to that chalkboard nail bit, you can now, you can practice this face, which is like I'm listening, but I'm actually doing something else online, right? So right. Okay, I'm answering emails, but yeah, I'm really listening to what you're saying. Right, so right, right. Pretty useful too. You can uh, multitask when you get to the bits where you don't need to focus. Yes. Well, um, you know, as, as somebody who worked in the elementary stream, I saw some pretty hilarious things with the other kids online hmm. and just knowing how easily distracted they are. Yeah. You know, yeah. you got about a good 15 minute window of, of them having any level of attention. Yeah. So I have you on here as the professor of economics. Now, economics is a, is a very broad subject. How would you describe what economics is? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, right? So we, we, one way it doesn't work to describe it is to, to think about what it deals with, right? So it mm -hmm. deals with markets or it deals with finance or it deals with like investment. It, it's not really uh, integrated around a topic or a focus. It really isn't. What it's about is a, a sort of a set of methodologies that we try to implement in a whole bunch of different settings. So it's kind of an economic way of thinking and approaching the world. So, so that's got to do with a set of assumptions about individual behavior. And those are assumptions that are very, uh, Kind of abstracted in the sense that you know they're not realistic individuals but they're capturing a core element of individual behavior and then we look at when we put those individuals together in a kind of in our conceptual frameworks what are the outcomes what are the social outcomes so our goal is not really the individual so much we do a pretty poor job of that if you if you've ever done like undergrad econ and you look at homo economicus this is a person that you would never realize and recognize and certainly no one you'd ever be a friend with right i mean they're really a nasty person so they're selfish and you know all these things but but you know we think there's a core of truth in all of that and then we think about you know what would happen if we had our simple model a population of people like that interacting bumping into each other doing things trying to achieve certain ends what are the outcomes we get and then we get predictions and insights into how things aggregative things act like markets 
like uh, the real estate market in Vancouver or, you know, the tomato market in Kitsilano. So we just, we, we, right. we populate our models and our thinking with these abstracted beings, these individuals or these firms. And what we're really focusing on is the social scientific phenomena, mm. things like the outcomes, which are, you know, often are markets, but not always with economics. So my work's on political economy. I look at a lot of political outcomes. Um, you know, governance, um, electoral behavior, behavior of uh, politicians, things like that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, you must be a well sought after person at this moment in time with the elections coming up in uh, November. Yeah. A the U.S. elections, of course. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So For one, I don't do anything on U.S. politics. So I, smart. I, I don't. <laughs> so I work in mainly in developing countries and on problems that are usually around you know, the big issues there are usually uh, the governance is pretty dysfunctional in lots of ways. So right. I'm looking at that and thinking about policies that would improve it. Uh, in some places, the governance is really good, but in others, not so. And you can learn from the places that are good and, and kind of come up with policies that would help the places that aren't that good. So that, you know, that's part of it. Yeah. So because when I thought of economics, I just thought it was looking at, at, at money and, you know, stock markets and things like that. But you're saying that you look at, at, at more sociological phenomena. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, okay. you know, I, I thought that too when I did yeah. economics. So I did it as an undergrad because my parents, I was doing arts. My parents were like, you've got to get a job. Remember, you know, <laughs> there's something that's useful. I was doing philosophy and all this stuff. And they're like, okay, like, okay I'll take it. But, you know, it, it really isn't about markets per se or about money per se. There are parts of it that are about that and there are whole fields in that. But what I'm interested in is, development. So I'm interested in my works really about why is there persistent poverty in some parts of the world and not others. And poverty isn't just about not having money. It's a poverty of a whole, right. a whole suite of activities that people are blocked off from being able to do because they're poor, because they live in, 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 you know, in, 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 in endemic poverty in, at different levels. Um, so how, how come, where, where does that arise from? What alleviates it? Um, what makes it persist? Questions like that. And then the particular angle my research has taken the last few years is really focusing on the governance bits. So trying to understand what it is that leads to, in particular, governance dysfunction in certain settings. Uh, yeah. So what, what countries have you looked at in terms of this uh, dysfunctional governance? So uh, most of the work that I have done has been in India and mm. in the state of Maharashtra, which is where Bombay is, that's where I did most of my like on the ground work. We collected our own data and spent time there um, and, and looked at in one level of governance. I'm looking at others now, but the one that we mainly focused on is village governance and right. locally elected democratic uh, village level institutions that provide public goods, some access to benefits, they don't have much taxation capacity, but they get resources from the center and they do stuff. So some of those do pretty well and others are really awful and corrupt and things like that. So mm. we wanted to understand why. So that was, that was probably the, the one area that I know most about, but you know, I've worked on, you know, a lot of my, the, what limits what I'm going to work on is data and data access. So I've worked with other people who've gotten data on say um, China at different levels, um, sub-Saharan Africa. I've done some work there. Um, and uh, I also have a project going on in Myanmar, which is not so much data related, but there's a little bit of data in that too. So, you know, it, it, I'm partly I'm eclectic, but the area that I feel like I know pretty well is village governments in India. I think I know that pretty well. 
Right. So when you're studying, like based on your, your work, your research, what are, what are the idiosyncrasies of a functional mm-hmm. uh, village government? And, and what are the idiosyncrasies of a dysfunctional one? Because yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, what I thought initially it would be, and, and I'm telling you that because my priors were wrong, uh, were that, okay, so where it's going to work well is where you have essentially what we think of as like the rudiments of democracy. People turn up, there's free and fair elections, um, uh, there's full information, um, no one's coerced. And what we found is that actually, at least in this state of Maharashtra, you know, there's pretty good counts on all of those things. So for village elections, you know, we had almost 90% turnout rate, which is super high, wow. right? These are villages about, you know, one and a half to two, two and a half thousand people. They, they elect a, a village government. Right. They vote every four years or so. Almost everyone turns up. And the kind of 10% of cases where people didn't turn up, they said, yeah, there was only one person standing, so there wasn't any point. So really, when there's a contest, they turn up. So that was really good. Um, was anyone coerced? No. Like, it really is pretty free and fair. Maharashtra is a pretty functional state. Um, there are surely, certainly, some people are more powerful than others, and that happens everywhere. True in Canada as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's holding a gun to anyone's head. They're, you know, there, there are states in India where there has been a lot of violence around elections. None there. Um, and when people were in kind of inquired, we inquired, we ran surveys, said, look, you know, who's doing what? You know, who's, who's your elected leader? What are their roles? Everyone was pretty well informed. So they're informed, they're not coerced, they're participating, yet those things weren't very good predictors of whether the government was doing good stuff. So, so what happened was we saw some governments, so we, I think we uh, had about 10,000 households, we had 300 governments. So some percentage of them were doing a terrible job. None of the kind of benefits that were supposed to come in were coming in. There was like high levels of corruption. There were no public goods. People would go and say, look, yeah, there's no point in going to the the government meeting because, you know, we know these guys are just doing things for themselves and their families and their cronies. Whereas in others, we saw a massive amount of activity happening, right? They They were implementing these schemes. They, you know, and the good thing about these schemes, is you don't have to pay for them locally. You just, you just need your local government to petition for them and, it bring, and they bring them in because they're funded from, from higher levels of government. So you really just needed good people to represent you right. to do it. So, so, you know, we were kind of really intrigued about why we were getting this variation, even though all of these places had high levels of turnout, high levels of participation, all that stuff was working well. So surface level democracy was really good. It was really cool. In terms of operations, they were varying massively. So what we found... Uh, the, the really kind of the big key difference was in the places where it was working well, there was a relatively, um, well, let me talk about the places that didn't work well. Then we'll okay. contrast them. So the places that didn't work well, this is what was happening. Everyone was turning out to vote and they mm. would vote for essentially the people that were promising them a whole bunch of benefits if they voted for them and politically supported them. And those people would sounds be, familiar. Yeah. yeah. So they were, but so exactly. So it's not so unfamiliar. It's called clientelism. There's actually a word for it in poli sci. So these guys are usually large landowners, usually pretty wealthy, and in this context, they were upper caste individuals. So they had a kind of traditional right. position of power. And what would happen is, they would vote themselves, get voted onto the electoral uh, council, 
and then they would essentially shut it down. Now, why were they doing that? Because they don't want all these programs coming into the villages. Why? Because they're large landowners, they hire labor, they hate all these things because they raise the cost of hiring people. So they would, they would like to keep people suppressed. Now, why were people putting up with it? Well, because these were their traditional patrons in a sense. So, so these were the guys and there was a quid pro quo. You've, I vote for you, I'm a poor guy. You, if my, if my kid gets sick, you're gonna help me out. And they did help them out. So there was this kind of reciprocal arrangement that was going on between the, the large landowners and the rich and the poor in those villages. And the large landowners were providing benefits to the poor, but they did it in return for the poor supporting them politically and them scuppering all of the kind of pro-poor policies that would be coming into the village. So they maintained their grip on the village and in return, the poor got benefits from them directly as patrons. So those villages actually were pretty cohesive. There wasn't a lot of conflict. You ask the poor people, do, do the upper caste, do the rich people look after you? They're like, yeah, they do. They always have, they've always looked after our family. So they were actually cohesive places. So we were kind of a bit surprised because we thought the villages where you had dysfunctional government, and those are the ones with dysfunctional government because they essentially shut the government down, those guys, they would be the places with a lot of conflict. They weren't, they were actually pretty peaceful places. So now contrast them with the other sorts of villages where things were working really well, where the government was really active. In those villages, that traditional structure, which used to be the case everywhere, had broken down. Hmm. So the poor in those villages said, look, we are the majority. We're not gonna keep voting for these bozos who don't do anything. We're gonna put in our own candidates. They would elect their own people. Their own people would then get to the council and they'd bring in those programs and all that. Now in those villages, the traditional power structure was really being circumvented by the, by the democratic structure. So the conflict was between the new people who were coming into power, who had traditionally been poor and who had access to these levers of government saying, you know, I don't owe you guys anything, you, you, you big landlords and you upper caste, we don't give you anything. And in return, those guys didn't give them anything. So it had completely broken down. So, gotcha. So in those villages, it was kind of like, you know, you could think of it, I mean, if you were kind of willing to be brave about talking about this process playing out over the planet, but some people think of this as this kind of this breakdown of traditional structures is what happens when, as you get kind of empowerment of through democracy of the poor. So, so previously they had this kind of cohesive relationship with their, with their, with their wealthy patrons and that cohesive relationship sort of fell, fell to bits. So that's why you get all this conflict, but, mm -hmm. As part of that process, you're also getting empowerment and you're also getting policies that are coming in that are raising wages. And then we measured the wages. Wages in those villages were higher. Profits in those villages were lower. It was bad for the landlords, good for the workers, but they were less cohesive. Sorry, my dog's barking. Like oh, that's all right. Okay, sorry. So it's kind of like, it's almost like this uh, proletariat Marxist system kind of taking over. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that kind of what you're describing? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm using, you know, the language familiar to me to describe something. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so that language, it just comes with so much baggage, right? Right. So, so, so the reason it doesn't quite fit is because it's, it's really not, um, it's not, it's, it's purely democratic, right? It's kind of the logic of democratic politics. If you have a majority and it's one person, one vote, you will control the system and they control the political system. So, there was no kind of, there's no real variation or differentiation right. in the economic side of things. Everyone still got large landowners and small landowners. Land holdings weren't any different in these villages. There wasn't more redistribution coming from the pure economic side of things. You know, they were still both very capitalist, you know. Um, 
but but you're right there is a kind of a narrative which is marxist that sort of fits that to an extent but that's more about you know revolution and sort of taking over so it's a little bit different here because those two systems are both completely democratic right and and there was no fear of there being like a you know this workers lower caste yeah no yeah. yeah i don't think so although you could argue that in the traditional villages where the upper castes are maintaining the old structure by giving benefits to the workers in return for voting for them maybe why they're doing that is because they do fear these becoming like those other villages right that they fear that if the workers did get activated in their mm. village and co coordinated politically they'd be able to take over the government and bring in the programs and their wages would go up so we'd better buy them off we'd better keep doing a good job so you know i mean i really i wouldn't be surprised if that's how the large landlords are actually thinking that you know that we have to take care of our poor in order to head off this sort of you know democratic revolt now again this is kind of drawing on on my knowledge or lack thereof but this the caste system it sounds a lot like the way that you're explaining it it reminds me of feudalism in uh, medieval europe that there were these peasants and they were being protected by the the, the landlords is are there parallels to that or again is there are parallels but i mean I, there are kind of pretty big distinctions too so um so caste isn't necessarily correlated with uh, land owning so gotcha it, it turns out that there are large land owning uh individuals and they would be pretty high caste individuals in our villages but the the most high caste individuals in our villages actually didn't almost own no land and they had mostly most of their families had decamped to the cities so they were kind of from a uh, a, a more scholarly priestly caste so oh so, so caste in india was much more correlated with occupation uh and and land holding clearly correlates with occupation too but it's not a perfect correlation so and and you know and the caste system was is qu quite unique in the sense mm -hmm. that um with modernization in europe a lot of the forces that kept feudalism and class-based marriages say together um went so they, they sort of broke down. So basically you got, you still have class to some, of course, to some extent in Europe, right. but, um, but it, the, the whole system sort of uh, broke down under the pressures of modernization. Whereas in India, um, it's still the case that in rural areas um, over, I forgot what the number was, when we were doing our surveys, uh, which is about 10 years ago now, there were over 95%, maybe even 99% of people married within their subcaste. So this is within the caste, there's broad categories, there's subcaste. It was extremely um, homogeneous in terms of, you know, who you married and who you yeah. could marry and marriages were still arranged. So I think that's breaking down now to, to a large extent in, in the cities, especially amongst the kind of urban middle class that's rising in India. But in rural India, where most people still live, yes, uh, it's not the case. It's still very caste-based. So... Again, it's it's quite unfamiliar for me. What exactly is the caste system? Are you able to explain that a little bit? Yeah. So you know, as an economist, I'm not an expert on it. So I'm no. Sure yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm not holding you to it. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> it's it's a system of occupation-based social social stratification. So you would have right. people who would be born into a caste, and those castes usually fit with an occupation. So so there would be people who are leather workers, right? So their parent, their father was a leather worker. And uh, then the, the children would be leather workers. And if they were girls, they would marry leather workers if, if women weren't working. Um, so they would marry within that occupation group. Yes. And 
And what would happen is, and this is why you see a lot of castes in every village, uh, it, is that, well, you need a lot of these occupations in all the villages, right? So you wouldn't get one village that would be all one caste because then you wouldn't have anyone to sort of do like the cleaning. There wouldn't be yeah. cleaner castes, right? So there'd be priestly castes. So, so when, when it's stated like this, it's kind of very horizontal, right? So there's just like everyone has a job and you're born into your job and you can see potential advantages to it, like long run in terms of efficiency, right? Things mm -hmm. like, well, you know, you, you, the skills stay in the family. You can teach your kids because you grow up with those skills. And when there wasn't formal education, that might have been a good way to transmit knowledge. Of course, today, it's much harder to argue that. And you can see the downside of that, too, would be that, you know, you might be born into the... Um, you know, engineer cast, but you might be terrible at math, right? Well, too bad. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you can't go and do anything else, right? So, so, so this really broke down. So the kind of, the, the correlation between caste and occupation is still there, but it's, that really weakened a lot. So that's weakened a lot. So now you do get people who are not born into their caste doing all sorts of things, gotcha. but the marriage correlation. So the fact that the social side of that's still intact is, is still really amazing, right? So that, that hasn't really broken down. To some extent, again, as I say, it's breaking down in the in in the cities, but but um, in rural areas, it's really still powerful. So you know, there's there's kind of all sorts of pretty awful things that can happen to people and punishments that are meted upon people by their families and by other people in the village if they marry outside their caste or if they have relationships outside their caste. So it's really a big thing of shame for, for parents. So so it's stated that way, horizontal and rigid, but there's also a verticality to it in that there are upper castes, sort of cultivator middle class and lower castes. And if you've heard the word untouchables, they were people that were um, considered to be in a, in a caste that was, um, you know, quite, quite low within the scheme. And then that would have a lot of social implications too. So for instance, they couldn't um, share food with people yeah. in the upper caste and people in the upper caste thought of them as, um, you know, sullying them you know so i mean of course i mean it sounds quite horrific when you put it like that and i'm sure a lot of very decent upper caste people don't feel this at all right so yeah. but this was the traditional characterization of it so this cast that the untouchables mm -hmm. is that like does that still exist today or yeah. is that yeah so 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 i think that's not the i mean so of course so that's yeah so, yeah. so they're called ballots uh um and uh yeah there's still still a large cast of so it's not one cast that's sort of a, a description of a whole bunch of people I okay and part of what india did is that it implemented at the time of independence a lot of affirmative action for people in those lower castes so that they would get preferential treatment in terms of uh, access to uh, education in terms of uh, job placements in the public sector so it was seen as as something that needed to be addressed um, and to some degree there's been some mobility um, but it's still uh, they're massively overrepresented in terms of poverty, in terms of, you know, illiteracy, um, child mortality, any measures of development, the lower castes will be much bigger sufferers of those than uh, the upper castes. Um, so, so, you know, mostly, so for instance, I met when I was growing up, you know, and when I was at university, I met a lot of Indians, but I never met anyone from a lower caste until I went to India. Because all of the people that I met were, you know, educated from cities and they were all upper caste. Their parents were educated. They were educated. They were able to go and do a PhD, say, in Canada. Um, and I, it was only when I, when I went to India that I met Dalits. And, um, 
and it's still it's still a thing, right? I mean, it still is uh, something that even th despite the best efforts of the government, I think there's still a lot of discrimination and, and prejudice against them for sure. Okay. Well, and, and when you were explaining the caste system, you, you sort of said it was based upon occupations and bringing it kind of back to here, I find it very interesting that uh, uh, lately I, I've seen so many postings for, you know, labor jobs, right? And, you know, uh, blueberry pickers working in farms, you know, things like that, whatever. It seems that everybody wants a job like, you know, to be a doctor, to, do, to do, be in education, things like that. But there's nobody who's able to work these labor jobs, right? Yeah. Which seems to, I wonder how that's impacting sort of our economic structure. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, one of the ways that it gets impacted in, in North America, I think, is that, uh, that a lot of uh, immigrants fill those jobs. Exactly. Uh, in the US, I mean, it's a lot of illegal immigrants. I guess there's less of that in Canada. And that's partly because they're willing to work at much lower wages. And the kind of knock-on effects of that are all over the place. So, so, you know, one is, well, I mean, you get cheaper fruit and vegetables because of it, because the costs are lower. And I guess if there's some competition in those markets, um, some of that's going to kick on to the consumers. But, but um, I mean, the bigger thing, I think, is that, you know, when people are crossing borders to work illegally, then they're taking a huge set of risks. Um, so, you know, we saw a lot of the um, infections that were happening with COVID were actually... Were, were, were sort of happening to workers who were held together in situations that, you know, Canadians or Americans wouldn't put up with. Um, and that's because they weren't being regulated and, and they were willing to put up with these conditions because they're poor and desperate. Um, so so that, that's one of, the, one of the implications. So, you know, clearly one, you know, one of the things that, that protects against that is proper regulation of labor markets, things like the minimum wage, which means that everyone gets a living wage. Um, so that means that, you know, the costs will go up for consumers if you have things like that. Um, but seems like a good trade-off to me, right? Yeah. Well, and, and that was a good point that a lot of these jobs that, you know, uh, middle-class families, whatever, they, they feel like, well, they're above that or whatever it may be, whatever their excuses. But you're right. It, it, these jobs are left for immigrants. But then you have people that have such problems with immigrants, which I find such a problematic uh, place to be because, you know, without that, nobody's going to run those jobs. And then yeah. the economy is in serious, you know, risk, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's a, I think there are a reasonable set of um, debates to have about levels of immigration, how much yeah. immigration, who, who to immigrate, who, who, you know, who to allow to immigrate. Um, and, you know, in Canada, it's pretty selective. So we select people who are pretty highly skilled. Yes. Um, and the US is much less selective in its immigration, actually. So, you know, they have a lottery, they, they allow people and they have traditionally allowed people who are relatively unskilled into their, into their country. So, you know, Canada has a point system like Australia does, which is yes. where I'm from. But um, so I think there are reasonable questions about, you know, how that should be done. Should it be tweaked? Should it not be tweaked? But I agree that there is a knee-jerk reaction, which happens more south of the border, but I think it happens here to some extent too, which is to blame things that don't seem to be working out too well on immigrants. Uh, uh, and it is the fact that they are going to be especially if they're illegal, they're going to be poor. If they're poor and they don't have access to opportunities, they're often pushed into more criminality. So I think those things, I mean, some of the data does show that. So, you know, I was just teaching to my students today a, an article uh, looking in Europe and it looked at rates of recidivism for immigrants. Mm. Who were, there was a big jail release. So they, they released a bunch of people, stopped overcrowding in jails. About 10,000 of them were immigrants. 
and they could look at the rate at which they recommitted crimes. And what they found was there was a set of those people who were uh, immigrants from Bulgaria and Romania. And at, over the time of their study, about six months after that mass release, those guys got, because of an EU agreement, they became essentially legal. Right? So it was just a law change. And what you could see is those guys, almost their recidivism rates were like, less than half of the other migrants. And that's because they now had something they could do. So, you know, there yeah. was this view of them as being as criminals because they're immigrants, but actually more than half of that was just driven by the fact that they weren't able to access the proper labor market. So it seems to me it's pretty clear, like in terms of policy, yes. either if, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna make it hard for illegal immigrants to work, to work above the table to get benefits, you're going to get crime. Yeah. Because you're creating a class of people who don't have access to the same capacities and opportunities as everyone else. So if you don't like that, then either you better build, you better stop all immigration, right? Because illegals, it's really hard to stop that altogether, or you better police it hard. But if you don't want to have a police state, maybe you could just be more lax about allowing them access to work. Right. Uh, and then you can try to think about normalizing it after that. So, you know, it's pretty clear where my, uh, sympathies lie on this, but uh, I think that's that's kind of a neat example of economics, right? Because it just shows you, look, wherever your sympathies are, here are the policy trade-offs. Here's what the data is telling us. Here's what the facts are. And then the policymakers, and in a democracy, you know, they're the people you elect, can make the choice. Um, that's what I think kind of the job of an economist is anyway. Well, that's, again, going back to, I think, what you are talking about earlier, I visualize, I stereotype, I generalize that ec economists are these cold-hearted people that just want to see what the stock market is going to do. And it's like, oh, you better sell now or you better trade. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, you're talking about reforms that can help people and you're looking for those anomalies and saying, hey, you know, just like that paper that you're talking about that, that, that you had me read and it was about pro-sociality mm -hmm. uh, in terms of these economic games. And what I picked up about it is that we what what like what we see others doing it makes us want to do that is mm -hmm. that right oh that's true yeah i think that's yeah. that's for sure true i think that's one of one of the messages there that we are in some ways and you know this makes a lot of sense we're inculcated in our values and our behaviors by our peer groups uh so that's certainly true um i think you know the kind of one of the big takeaways there so just to give a little bit more context on that the the thing that we saw, which made us a little bit surprised, right. and which links to this big story, right, which is, you know, we see people interacting in markets all the time. And when you see people interacting in markets, they look like they're following self-interested, selfish behavior, right? If they get a better price, they'll, they'll sell to somebody who's offering them more. They'll try to kind of economize by lowering their costs. You know, they, they and, and, and just to, sorry, just to clarify, by markets, you mean like trading? Yeah. Yeah. So let's think of, uh, you know, it's hard to think of interactions that don't happen in markets in the economy, right? So, so labor market is one. So I'm selling my labor to UBC, they give gotcha. me a salary, but I can go to them and say, hey, you have to pay me more or else I'm going to leave. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty much how we do it, right? So we gotcha. actually do do that. Um, but, you know, I go to Safeway, I pick up the groceries, that's interacting in a market too. And if their prices are too high or if the lines are too long, I'll go to the, the, the other guys up on, you know, 10th Avenue or something. So there's a lot of, um, you know, market interactions that, that's of a particular, the forms that we're kind of familiar with. Now, right. so what we did, what we noticed, and this was kind of a little bit surprising to us, is that um, when you 
looked at measures of trust. So, so there are these surveys, it's, it's really a long held survey, which is uh, people get asked a question, you know, do you think most people can be trusted or you can't be too careful in dealing with people? It's called the, the uh, generalized trust question. It's been asked for like, I don't know, 50 years and to, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people have asked, answered this question. And it turns out that there's pretty stable sets of responses based on where you are. So within a country, some countries are high trust, right. others are low trust, and that seems to be pretty stable through time. So what we were curious about is whether interacting in markets tends to make one more trusting or less trusting. Now, we all interact in markets all the time, so you can't really look at us, right? So we're not really a good case. So what we did is refined it a little bit. We said, what happens if you're in a more competitive market as opposed to a less competitive market? So if you're under the force of competition, so that means you're interacting with uh, other people who are selling something similar to you and for whom you have less of a margin, does that make you more trusting or less trusting and not of your coworkers and not of the people you're competing in general, of, of humanity in general? And what we found was that the more competitive the labor market you were in, so the more competitive the firm that you were in so this is the firm that you were working in. So that's where it's a sense of the labor market. It's not the labor market. The more competitive the firm you work in is. So that means the more competition it faces from other firms, the more likely its workers are to say that they trust people. So we thought that was pretty weird. And we verified this and validated it in lots of different contexts. So it turns out, and you know, that's a bit surprising, right? Because a lot of people think that what happens under competition is it brings out the worst in people. It makes people cutthroat. It would make them less trusting, if anything. So we found quite the opposite, and it's pretty robust. We, we, we sort of validate, and we think it's consistent with, I mean, there's lots of ways of explaining it, but what we tried to do in the lab is try to run some experiments to sort of generate the effects we were getting and we were seeing in the data to see if we could sort of understand more deeply what the mechanism was. And we think it's consistent with, uh, people are learning that when you're in a competitive environment and this is your groups facing a lot of competition, yeah. then you have to pull together. And if you don't, you'll be driven out of that competitive yeah. environment. Yeah. So the fact that you're under pressure in a sense and under siege means that you pull together and then it changes your attitude towards people in general. So you, why, why is that? Well, it sort of makes sense that you spend a lot of your working, your, your waking life at work, right? So if you're in an interaction where people are working together and helping each other, then when some random stranger comes to you and says, hey, do you think most people can be trusted? You say, yeah, for the most part, they can. Right. <clears throat> but, but if you worked in like the Australian Wheat Board, which is a big monopoly, right, where when I was growing up, you know, a lot of my friends uh, got jobs there out of university, one of my friends said, you know, it was like, as soon as the clock, you know, struck four, everyone was out and down the pub, you know, nobody's doing it. Why? Because, you know, they had a big monopoly, they could do whatever they wanted, right? So nobody- You, you didn't feel like there was any ownership was no on your part. There was no pressure, right? nothing right. mattered. Everyone was just really just, you know, whatever. They go into work, they kick around, the wheat board had a big surplus, no big deal, right? So. So there were no consequences, there was no competition. And then they just, you ask them, can people be trusted? They're like, no, not really. You're like, nobody really does anything very well or works very hard. So, so we, we, we think it was probably, well, that's our conjecture that it was being yeah. caused by that. Yeah. And, the, and the reason that's, it's kind of related to this bigger question, right? So this gets back to Marx actually, because Marx, you know, a big part of 
the Marxian kind of critique, and I think it's implicit, but a lot of people have it. Um, so in other social sciences, they'd say, look, as economists, in a sense, you make people selfish. You, you start from this position that, oh, everyone's selfish, therefore we have to create rules and incentives. But by doing that, you make people nasty and selfish. If instead our society appealed to people's more benevolent side, and instead of saying, you know, um, you know, we, we have to compete and, and, and people who compete the best get rewarded with a big house. If we just said, look, everyone can just take what they need. Everyone would just be able to kind of live by their means without any, any need for kind of excessive wealth or consumption. This would bring out their nicer side and they'd be more pro-social. So what we found is quite the opposite, right? Which is that, the, at least in this little slither of the data, the more competitive the environment, the more cutthroat it was, in a sense, the more pro-social people believed others were around them. Um, and then the more pro-social they tended to be themselves, which is what connects to your earlier point, which is that people tend to do what they think others around them are doing as well. So they also acted more trusting as well. And, and, and when, when I read these things, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm heavy on the extrapolations in case you didn't pick that up, but uh, <laughs> like human evolution, right? So going back to, you know, when, when we were primitive apes or whatever, because you talk about non-kin, we kind of had to work together, right? And we look at the other tribes and maybe we'd be at war with them. So you would have to work with your group, right? And you'd have to share amongst them. And if I think the article kind of talks about it, that you might be taken into the other group or the other firm as you, as you use it, but it's almost like it's describing how we got to where we are today. Right. Yeah. Is through yeah. this teamwork and we talk about cooperation and competition. Sometimes if we just cooperate, that's a, that's a road to failure. I think about the historical example of the, of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, I think that happened in like 1961 or something like that. And they're trying to take back, uh, you know, Cuban loyalists were trying to retake hmm. Cuba from Fidel Castro. And when they were planning this out, everybody was like, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just all agreeing. Uh, nobody was challenging anybody. And then as we know, they go in and it was a complete failure. They knew all about it. Mm. And, you know, therefore the Bay of Pigs was a failure. Whereas mm. when you have competition, when you have people working and they're disagreeing, you can actually create a better, you know, end product, at least from my experiences, that's what I've noticed. Yeah, I think that that really that's that makes a lot of sense. So I, that sounds uh, right, and it resonates with uh, the the things that we found there too. So one of the things, one of the distinctions I'd make is between uh, competition across groups and competition within groups. So 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 what we really focused on was competition across groups. So it's when another firm is threatening your firm's existence that really motivates people, and and they pull together. Now, competition within groups, it could do that too, but it could, you could imagine it could be a lot more insidious too, right? So people could be undermining each other and that could undermine all of the trust. So that's not something that we focused on in our, in our study. So, and we didn't have data on within group competition. That's much harder to get. So, so I think competition can cut both ways, right? So if it, if it reinforces for us, our joint goal, which it, which it does when you're facing an external threat, you can imagine it really engenders a lot of pro-social attitudes. But if it reinforces the kind of importance of me getting ahead at your expense, 
and it could do that too, then I could imagine it's a lot less likely to generate those, those positive forces. So I, mean, I think that's one big sense in which, uh, you know, markets could, be, could work both ways. Right. Have you, have you ever read that book, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel? Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. And, and uh, he sort of talks about how, again, where we got to today is that this group would have firearms, right, going back thousands of years. They had firearms. So we need that too. But then they both kind of have it, and there's a bit of a stalemate in terms of technological advancement. But then another group will bring in, uh, you know, the cannon or something, and then they incorporate that. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of kind of going back to what you're saying. But when we have all these uh, competitive groups, they're looking at each other and they're like, okay, we have to survive. We need what they need. But then when everybody gets rid of that, then there's, there's no further advancement. So it's, it's almost, again, from this competition, that's how we get true progress. Yeah, I think that's really right. So I think the gun germs and steel case and the one you're talking about is really technology based. Yeah. And one kind of wrinkle on that that's a little bit different in, in the work that I've been doing is that uh, what people in this area are trying to argue is that the reason that we see so much pro-sociality amongst humans, and we do have off the scale levels of it compared to other primates, uh, and this is towards non-kin, right? We do, we yes. do have it. So, so, so by any measure, we have real high levels of that. The reason we have it is because we were in environments where these were valuable for keeping our groups alive, okay? And that, so it is that competition that led to not just the technology, but actually to the traits that we're carrying around today. And gotcha. one of them is, you know, I can look at somebody, I don't know them from Adam, but I'm willing to kind of think, yeah, let's work together. You know, and, and in some contexts that really happens. But I mean, the kind of interesting thing is that in, some, in others, it doesn't. There's, you know, it can easily be the case that people sort of slide into situations of, you know, profound mistrust and then things break down. And then you look at somebody and you don't know them and you're threatened. And, you know, that, that changes things a lot. So I think humans can be all of those things. I mean, depending on the context, we can, we can change a lot. So, so the people working in this area, and a guy that I've been very influenced by is a guy called Joe Henrik, who, who's at Harvard. Um, who argues that um, our, our, uh, our kind of suite of psychological characteristics co-evolved with our, our social selves. So, so essentially the fact that we were in these competitive social environments created a selection for uh, types who were pro-social towards their group members because that allowed those groups to survive. So for another way of putting it is when we were in these really competitive environments, if we had some types in those environments, or if most of them were not pro-social, they were nasty, those groups got wiped out. So that we're, right. we're the, uh, the ancestors of the pro-social ones. Yeah, because nobody wants a friend who's an asshole, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's still the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's actually a, a good point. I mean, if, you're, if you have this uh, kind demeanor, right, that makes you you know, more interesting to mates or whatever, right? Going back to the, you know, uh, evolve, evolution. Sorry, I, I lost my words there for a sec. But yeah, it, by, by being pro-social, like you say, that makes, like, you just get so many more opportunities in life. Yeah, so, so I guess right? the downside, so it doesn't come, at, at, it's not costless, right? So if you are just nice to everyone, uh, you know, you can get screwed over too. Yes. Right? So, 
So then the question is, how do we, how do we balance that trade-off? And, you know, we, we do develop a lot of things, right? So we're pretty good at picking up when people are lying to us. You know, we watch where their eyes are going, which is why Zoom's so hard because people are looking. <laughs> you know, yeah. so You'll see actually, me looking. I'm taking notes as you talk. That's, that's like, great. Yeah. Well, you are like one of my best students. You're writing everything down. And I, I, I read the article too. Oh, wow. You are awesome. <laughs> Stars for me. So... Now, the, the other thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about is right now with, uh, with COVID, this is such a strange economic time because, you know, we're, we're paying people for staying home, or we were at least with the CERB in Canada. Uh, it sounds like the United States were doing similar things. Meanwhile, you have corporations, and I swear I'm not a conspiracy theorist, mm. but I'm curious to know what you think about this. So I did a quick little Google search. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, which you always got to fact check. Oh, yeah, and as I get older, I know the importance of footnotes. <laughs> but certain corporations, like they just keep making more money. For example, Saudi Aramco, which is an oil company, they have one point six trillion dollars and increasing. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon. Mm-hmm. But then you think about the GDP of countries, right? So, so uh, Mauritius, I can't say that right. Uh, Mauritius, <laughs> Mauritius. Thank you. It has a GDP of fourteen billion, right? Mm-hmm. It's not too much. Yeah. So it's almost like, could we ever see a time where corporations start just like buying and owning land? Oh, they do already, right? They own land a lot. Yeah. So could they buy a country? Uh, I don't think they would want to, right? Right. But owning land for sure. They they own tons of land. Those guys, right? So, um, so you know. Uh, so I think I'm a big believer in uh, in capitalism in the sense that, you know, the profit motive is a powerful thing and it's a useful thing and it can be regulated towards the greater good. So the fact that, you know, you know, Elon Musk may be a narcissist, maybe any, it doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. the reason he's rich is because he's producing something that consumers want. So he creates a lot of value in doing it. Now, that's a pretty regulated market, right? In the sense that, um, He's not producing something that uh, is doing harm and right. deceiving people or, or telling them that, you know, uh, there's no kind of, uh, there's, some, there's some sort of insidious effect to it. For instance, like oil would be one, right? So oil, uh, you know, you can produce a lot of oil. It has pretty bad effects when it's burnt on the planet. And I believe strongly that we should regulate those, that the costs to all of us, to our society, from emitting that carbon into the atmosphere, our best estimate of what those costs are should be borne by the people that are actually producing the stuff, right? So we put a tax on it. We put a tax on carbon, which would be a great way to do it. We should be pricing these things. So I believe that there's a huge role for government in making sure that the collective interest, our societal interest, our planetary interest coincides with individual self-interest, which is unleashed in markets. But individual self-interest, I think, is a very powerful motivator. We shouldn't give up on it. So I think it's really powerful. And if you have badly regulated markets or non-regulated markets, then it can run amok and you get all sorts of awful things happening. So well, you know, I think corporations are just another example of that. Corporations are another example of yeah, things. Yeah, they should be regulated, right? So they, I, they, yeah. they are there to, to represent their, the, the interests of their shareholders. So what it means is if you have lax regulation, they have an obligation to make money for their shareholders. And if they don't, they'll be kicked out, right? They'll be kicked out by a corporate raider who will buy the shares and say, hey, there's this profit-making opportunity they're not taking. 
So the markets will drive them towards maximizing value for their shareholders. That's what they do. Right. Now, if you have laws that allow them to maximize value by screwing the planet, that's what they'll do. So right. don't have laws like that. Make better laws. So this is why we have to oversee companies and we have to have regulation. And in well-functioning polities, we do. And in poorly functioning ones, we don't. And it's, to me, it's really simple. It's just another example. So I don't put any weight on the personalities of the people or the, or the fact that, you know, these companies are rich or poor. Some of them are going to do really well, like Amazon's going to do really well right now because everyone's stuck at home and just getting parcels delivered to them. No one's going to shops. Retailers are going to do poorly. I don't take a sort of a judgment stance on that. But what I do take a judgment stance on is if Amazon is, by being so powerful and so wealthy, is buying the regulation it wants and, and therefore can avoid doing things that are in the social good and is doing social damage, that's bad. I mean, that's a real right. failure of, of societal oversight. So that's what we have to stop. But, you know, the fact that Amazon or Jeff Bezos is going to be rich, that's neither here nor there to me. And I guess what I was trying to say is, is that our, the, the U.S. has like a, a, a debt of, again, I don't know this off the top of my head, I looked it up, but $26.7 trillion. Mm-hmm. And their GDP is 20 trillion. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's a deficit there. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if as these corporations, you know, make more money, are they ever going to bail out, you know, or pay off the debt of some of these countries, especially after something like this, you know, pandemic? And if yeah. so, would there be, you know, would they then have kind of ownership or say over the, the politics? Oh, you're, you're breaking up here. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I missed that. So, so oh. yeah, uh, yeah. So your your point was that you know that these companies are big, yeah, and and governments and countries will get into debt, and it's the, potentially the case that these companies could buy out some of the debt or bail out the right. government. And then, well, so one, I think if that were the case, there would be that would be hugely problematic because it would mean that the owners of these companies would have massive influence over the policies that we have. That's yeah. That would be really problematic. Um, I think in the case of the U S it's, there's a lot of ways in which corporate interests affect politics. And, but that's, I, I think that's one that's not really on the radar right now. And, and the reason is, you know, they can, I mean, the, the kind of industry of lobbyists who, who, who affect for policy in their direction is massive. And there's a formalized way of affecting policy directly without having to worry about buying out the debt the US government, right? You can just yes. go to politicians and get them to support certain causes by, by helping them with their campaigns. And it's, it's all above board. That's how the system works. Financial incentives, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that to me is kind of problematic just off the bat, right? I mean, it means that there's going to be a lot of people with a massive amount of influence on politics who aren't necessarily following the social interest. In fact, if their companies spending their company's money, they're going to be trying to get legislation that's in the interest of the company. So it seems to me somewhat problematic right off the bat. The case of the US is a little bit different. So one thing is if the US has a massive uh, debt, the US government, they're in a kind of an unusual position compared to most other governments. And the reason is that they print the money that is their debt. So, so what I mean is the following. If the Canadian government writes a contract, a debt contract with you know, Japan, um, then they borrow money from the Japanese government. I mean, it's not really how it happens, but just in a stylized sure. way, think this way, it's written in US dollars. So if the Canadian government has to pay back its debt, they have to get US dollars somehow. And that's not easy to do, right? You have to get 
Canadian dollars and then you have to convert it into US dollars. So they have to be able to pay back the debt in the currency that it's denominated in, right? The US writes the debt in its own currency. So if the US government ever had any trouble with its debt, they could just print more money. Now that would, that would massively inflate. Yeah. And it would cause all sorts of problems, but they wouldn't, they will never have a debt problem because they, they control the printing press. Whereas for every other country, the debts are denominated in US dollars. They don't control the printing press. So that's just like a small thing about the, 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 the nature of the US debt. It's written in Whoa. US dollars, which is kind of a cool position to be in, right? They are printing. That's insane. Like, it's like you lend me a million bucks and I, pay, <laughs> I will pay you back in Patrick dollars. And, you know, if I, if I don't have enough of them, I'm just going to make some more over here. Yeah. And over here. Right. It's, it's kind of a cool deal, but, but um, it's, it's really just, just the case for the US. And of course, they wouldn't do that. Why? Because they, they, they uh, have a huge amount of value to the fact that everything's denominated in their currency. So if they were to uh, inflate like that, it would devalue their currency massively and they would yes. no longer be having that role. So, so there is, you know, there is, it's not like people are crazy by writing these contracts like that. But, but I think, you know, in terms of debt, you know, I'm not a macroeconomist, but it's yes. the, the amounts are always like mind boggling. You know, you just can't imagine there are that many zeros. Um, but, but really what you need to do is compare it to the kind of tax burden of financing the interest payment on the debt. Right. So, so it's like we have a debt, whatever it is, let's think of it at the household level. It's a million bucks. If interest rates are 1%, that's 10,000 bucks a year. That's what we have to meet every year. We have to meet the 10,000 bucks. So the fact that we have a million dollars in debt isn't really a pressing concern as long as we can keep meeting our interest payments. So, so it's kind of important to take into account like what the, what the interest rates are on the debt and what the servicing, whether the servicing capacity of the debt is a problem. And I think right now for the US, it isn't a problem, even though it sounds big. Wow, that's... Uh... So, so essentially the U S is like, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever is gold standard. Everything was measured in, in bullion, right? Yeah. Now everything is in U S is like the standard of currency. Yeah. So now it's all fiat currency. So you just write it in, in what you can write the contract in, I guess, in whatever currency you want, but it turns out that most debts are written in, in U S currency. Well, when did that happen? I guess when the gold standard was abandoned, uh, when they went, yeah, I don't know exactly when, when, it, when it became majority US, maybe at the start it was mostly in pound sterling. I mean, I don't know, but the yeah. US even, by the time the gold standard was abandoned, the US was already the world's financial powerhouse. So it probably was probably right after that, but actually, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And the other thing that I find fascinating is that the, the, the level of currency in the world, let's say it's a hundred trillion dollars, will only, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but only 20 trillion of that actually exists. Something like that. Like the amount of currency that doesn't actually, it's not even physical. It's just like, but yeah. what, what is it then? Yeah. So it's like, it's sitting in my bank account, right? So I've got a whole <laughs> bunch of money in there, which is just in an electronic account at Scotia somewhere. Um, so they're not like, there aren't like notes in their vault that are mine. Right. So there's a whole bunch of money that's in circulation, but at any one time, most of the money is just sitting there doing nothing. It's just in those accounts with numbers, right? So we don't have to have had the notes or the currency for that, for it to be working, right? So it's got a lot more, it's got a lot more, um, I mean, in a sense, I mean, you know, in theory, we could all go and get our bank accounts in notes, right? Right. But there, there aren't enough notes to do that. So 
So yeah. this is why when bank runs happen, it's a, such a disaster, right? Because everyone goes, hey, I've lost my confidence in these accounts. I want the money and I want to convert it into gold or something. And then, then you have complete, um, you know, you basically you get breakdown as a financial system. So, so, so what uh, we innovated with is we realized, well, what you need to do is have um, government-backed deposits. So, so then the government's essentially saying, uh, we guarantee you, you know, even if this bank goes bust, you are going to get your $20,000 in the bank or whatever, you know, right. we guarantee it. And, th- and we have that in Canada and most um, developed countries, financial sectors have that. So we have, that's to stop bank runs. Because, so, because when this all was happening, when COVID was first starting, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of my friends are like, you got to get your money out of the bank. And I'm like, that is probably the worst thing that you could do. <laughs> because if we all did that, yeah, yeah. right, yeah. then the whole, you know, the whole system would, yeah, kind of flutters or anything. It's it's robust. So you know, yeah. if if we all, so we the, the risk would be that uh, the 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 security, the guarantee that we're getting, uh, would fall, and that would mean the Canadian government would fall because the Canadian government's guaranteeing Canadian bank drafts, right? So so you know, as long as you believe the Canadian government's relatively stable, then you don't need to pull your money out of the bank because they're the last guarantor of your uh, cash. Uh, and, and it's for that very reason that when there was instability in banking, people would withdraw their cash and then the banks didn't have enough uh, cash to actually uh, meet their obligations. So, so, so one of those would be um, the people have borrowed money uh, and they have it you know, tied up in a house. So, so typically what happens is when, when everyone extracts all of the, their cash into the, out of the system, you get these... Um, uh, you, you know, you get this kind of crashes in, in, in asset values and then, and then the value of people's assets is less than their obligations, right? So, you know, I borrowed a million dollars to buy a house, but it's now worth $200,000. Uh, people right. walk away from them and you get these mass foreclosings. Nobody can sell their assets because everyone's selling into a fire sale. So it was that whole experience that, that led to things like this kind of prudential um, insurance so insurance of bank accounts and oversight of how much lending can be done. So banks have this ratio, they have to hold a certain amount of, you know, liquid to illiquid assets in order to stop this sort of thing. So, you know, uh, we learned, you know, we learned from these the, the things like the Great Depression and, and, and the financial chaos that, that ensued. Yeah, because in, in 2007, uh, there was the real estate crisis mm-hmm. then. It wasn't the same, like it was bad, of course, there were all these foreclosures, but the assets you know, the liquid, the, you know, the assets that you have inside your house, those didn't lose their value, but the homes did. Yeah. Right? So the banking sector didn't shut down. Right. So yeah. the banking sector kept liquid and that was through a set of kind of really clever actions by the U S federal reserve and also the kind of, you know, regulators all over the world in order to keep liquidity in the financial sector. So, yeah, so totally. So if that had happened in 1930, then we didn't have the knowledge to do it. We would have had, serious real economic consequences so there were there were kind of con- a lot of consequences to this right. uh, big shutdown there was a decline but it wasn't there wasn't massive it wasn't like the great depression yeah. but we were able to insulate the real economy to a large extent from this massive um devaluation that happened in the financial side of the economy yeah right and, and 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 like we've talked about the market the real estate market that bubble burst so many other things kept going on and you know yeah those bubbles grew right yeah 
So what, like, again, totally speculative, but what, what is the future of what's going on now in terms of COVID and yeah. the economic future? Again, you look at the micro and I think that we can learn so much from those anomalies for the bigger picture. So, yeah, it's tough, right? So, you know, you could sort of, uh, you know, who knows, right? So, so yes. you can sort of bookend it between two sort of extremes. So uh, one extreme is, uh, you know, the, the, the underlying cause of this is uh, the requirement for a whole bunch of economic activity to stop because certain actions that were just part of normal economic, you know, life became lethal, right? Because you would right. contract the virus. We, we weren't sure about how lethal it was and for what age groups it was. And it still is pretty lethal. It's got a pretty high, you know, uh, mortality rate. Um, so those activities had to stop. Uh, and some of them were curtailed severely, others less so. Um, people, most people are engaged in some sort of reduction, right, in their workforce too. So yeah. people aren't going into work, they're working from home where they can. Okay, so that's all that happened. So, so one extreme, I think, would be, oh, well, that, that stops because we come up with a, a vaccine or some fantastic form of treatment that just means it's no longer lethal. Okay, and then when that stops, the underlying reason for all of the curtailment and activity goes away, and that could happen, you know, very quickly. And then the economy rebounds and bounces back. So then we get a blip. So we get a downward blip that was caused by certain like phenomena that passes, it's passed, and then we get back onto the trajectory we were on before. So that's one kind of extreme, I right. think. Uh, that's a very optimistic one. Um, so another extreme, I think, is, well, it can happen in a few ways. So one is this thing just lasts for a very long time. Okay. And if it lasts for a long time, it has real effects that are more than temporary, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of irreversibilities. Once a business shuts down, it's gone. And once that business shuts down, the people who work there, their demand has gone. And the people that supplied them, their market has gone. So there's a whole bunch of knock-on effects. So these kind of profound, pervasive, widespread effects filter through the whole economy. And then the economy is acting, you know, it's, it's being triggered by something that, you know, was an essential shutdown, which was, you know, the, the possibility of contracting the virus, but it has so many profound knock-on effects that once we then move away from that, so once we've come up with a vaccine, well, the economy's in such a depressed state that it's not like it can go back to normal. And it will, if it can, it will require a massive sort of spark to start it up again, and that may not happen, right? So we see, I mean, there's actually a lot of, theoretical work in economics, not exactly uh, cut and dried what, what causes recessions, but one of the views is that, you know, bad expectations that's become self-fulfilling, self-fulfilling prophecies amongst a bunch of the people in the population can lead you to just a, a massive decline in, in economic activity. And so how that would work is like, I think there's going to be a recession. If I think there's going to be a recession and, and, I, and I can convince you and everyone, all of us think there's going to be a recession. What happens is, well, we, we're going to stop our investing because there's going to be a recession. Well, if we stop investing, there's not going to be any growth, no, no expansion of industry. People also think there's not going to be demand. They start laying off workers. Well, guess what? If you start doing all those things, fulfilling recession. Yeah. Right. So, so, so if you're in, a, in, in an environment that's extremely pessimistic, that's driven by the fact that there has been a massive amount of foreclosure, that there has been you know, unemployment, that there's been um, shutdown of businesses, then it may be very hard for the economy to, to get back to the point where it was prior to, 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 the, to the pandemic. 
may take a long time. So, so that, that scenario uh, is like a much more pessimistic one, right? That, that the expectations just work to reinforce it staying in this very bad state, this kind of depressed state. Um, it, it is interesting how, like you said, uh, the study of economics is, is so eclectic in its approach. I mean, it, it, it incorporates, you know, psychology, it incorporates finance, all kinds of things. And I think that in your answer, you, you, like you say, you have to take into account, like, what do people think is happening? Mm. Right? Yeah, and, totally, totally. I mean, that's the thing you can't lose sight of in, in economics. It's a social science. Right. It's ultimately, it's, it's predicated on human behavior. And there are a lot of things that determine that behavior. Some of it's super rational, but some of it's just like wacky and crazy and expectations. And those things are going to affect outcomes and can do so profoundly. So, so I never lose sight of that. You know, this is about, this is about humans and, and their kind of fallibilities and how they interact in aggregate right. and what it leads to. Um, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and looking at the whole consumerist mindset, like when the new iPhone came out, everybody had to have it, that kind of thing. Right. But again, how that drives markets. Yeah, no, that's um, a, that's a real tough one. Right. So there's kind of like profound questions about value too. Right. So, right. so if we create, a need in somebody and then they feel really satisfied when they buy their thing. Are we really creating value? I don't know. Like it's, you know, I, I get we're creating value when we feed people who don't have enough food. That makes sense. Right. We created something, right. If, you know, there's the iPhone 73. I don't even imagine what that thing is. Right? <laughs> but I guess when it comes yeah. out and when it's properly marketed, I'm going to need it. Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm going to have to have it. No, no. I've got to have that thing. Right? <laughs> so, you know, and then so they create an itch and then we scratch it. Is that creating value? I mean, I think reasonable people can disagree on that, right? Right. Uh, but, you know, it's, but then, you know, the problem is if you go too far down that route, right? Because that's kind of the route of going, well, you know, consumers are manipulated and, you know, it's not typically the route we take in economics. We, we kind of believe strongly in consumer sovereignty. People pay for it because they like it. They like it. Let them buy it, you know, if they can afford it. You know, that's, sure. that's kind of our measure of value. It usually runs in that direction. So the alternative is to say, well, you know, no, nah, we, we, I know better. I know better. And nobody wants to do that, right? I don't want to be the kind of person, the curmudgeon going, well, you think, you think that you need the iPhone 372, but that's not good for you. You know, what you should do is just kind of get a meditation app and go sit on a mountain. You know, that's, that's a higher form of good. Like, I mean, who are we to say that, right? Right. Right. Well, I, I am just looking at the time here and uh, it's, uh, we've been talking for a good hour. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Patrick Francois. And uh, so, wh what's what's next for you? I mean, you you said that you're you're teaching from home. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that uh, you know when this thing blows over, I'll be able to get back to doing more research. You know, mm -hmm. I don't get much time for it now because. I'm doing kind of a lot of admin stuff. But you know, that's kind of getting a bit more moderated now, so that that's good. Um, um, you know, uh, the great thing about being an academic, it's just the most, it's the most fantastic job. Like, don't believe anyone who ever complains to you about these jobs. These are awesome jobs. You get to think about whatever you want as much as you want, right? It's so cool. And, and you have to teach a little bit, but you don't, we don't teach very much, right? We teach a little bit and the people that we teach are, are usually really smart and bright and it's, you know, I feel energized by the teaching. It's actually, it's pretty fun, right? As long as I don't have to do 10 yeah. courses, like I just do a few courses. It's a lot of fun. The students are smart. They're engaged. 
I mean, it's, it's an awesome job. So actually, I don't know what my next research is going to be. You know, the last few months I've been reading about consciousness. I'm sure mm. I can't like contribute anything on it because it's about like, you know, it's neurobiology, right? So, but it's so interesting to read, right? So that's, yeah, I find that fascinating. What, yeah. what are you reading? Oh boy. Uh, I don't know. I read a bunch of books on it. So um, there's this guy called Thomas Metzinger. He wrote this book called the ego tunnel. I thought that was a great book. Um, hmm, what else did I read? I read a book called by Donald Hoff. I think Hoffman's his name about, uh, you know, kind of his, his thesis is that uh, essentially we, we uh, create an illusion of the world and that's essentially what we, we, we populate. So we don't actually have a direct interaction with the world. We just walk around and right. kind of it through this illusion. And it's kind of a little bit like a sort of a, a, a mouse on a, a, you know, on a, on a desktop. So you can sort of see it going around and you're, you're double clicking on things and you think, well, I'm opening a folder, but you're not, you know, it's just kind of, you know, zeros and ones at some base level. So that's, you know, I don't know, like, I don't have a strong feeling about it either way. I just think it's a super compelling and interesting topic. And, and I, and I am kind of curious about it. So that's one of the great things about being an academic. You can read all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly been wonderful speaking with you and, and learning some things. Uh, and thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Robert. It was a lot of fun. All right. Once again, that was Dr. Francois at the University of British Columbia. Um, I, I loved having him on, explaining, you know, what economics is, as well as uh, it's, it's more than just finances, but it's this eclectic study of, of disciplines, um, and, and it's, it's a lot more humanistic than I thought it would be. I love how he shared about how e economies might explain sort of our, our, our current human evolution and how we were able to cooperate and compete in firms and different markets to get to where we are today. Um, it's definitely something I've never thought of. So once again, thank you, Dr. Patrick Francois for being on the show. And thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.